Our Father, we thank you for this evening and the opportunity to continue in our study. We thank you for the richness of your word and the wonderful way in which your son taught his apostles and prepared them for the great work that they had to do in the world. And uh, we pray that uh, we would be heartened in this and we count ourselves privileged to listen in and to look with wonder upon um, both how these words transformed these men and in anticipation of the story of what they would go on to do to turn the world upside down. And we pray for your blessing upon us to the end that that gospel would continue to glorify our Savior and make its progress in this world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, we have a chapter entitled Why, Why, Why? <laughs> the, uh, uh, there was a, a rock and roll song when I was younger. Or no, it was a pop song. Tom Jones. You remember Why, Why, Why? <laughs> it was a great song. <laughs> That's what I've been thinking about all week with this title. <laughs> Um, but it uh, is a clue to us that the heart of the lesson is going to be Jesus um, uh, having discerned uh, what was in the apostles' hearts and minds, uh, trying to address those things and to answer their questions, alleviate their concerns. It's a very interesting chapter. Uh, you may have noticed there is some repetition in this chapter, and uh, repetition can seem tedious, um, but at least Dr. Ferguson gets uh, off the hook because if there's repetition, <laughs> he's just teaching what Jesus taught. So uh, we, we have to be concerned with Jesus if we're concerned about repetition. But there are lots of reasons for repetition. It can be sort of an apt, absent-minded speaker. Uh, or one who doesn't really have much to say and keeps repeating the few things they have. I think we could rule those out as uh, attached to Jesus. Um, it can be because the speaker thinks his audience is relatively slow and need, need to be helped along. Uh, but it can also be because of the extraordinary importance of the subject, that repetition is a way of... Uh, uh, supplying emphasis and um, making sure the points get home. I, I know that uh, you may realize that the Hebrew language doesn't follow English. We have uh, the um, uh, good, best, better, or something like that. We have different words that show the progress of sensibility uh, heightened and um the Hebrew language just simply repeats the words. Um, so it's once, twice, thrice. Uh, and that's the significance of, for example, Isaiah's vision, holy, holy, holy. Uh, that's not just a refrain, you know, like in some of our songs at church where things get repeated over and over again. Uh, but rather, it, it is a matter of saying that God is the superlative Holy One. And uh, 
that message comes across to Isaiah as he uh, is almost undone in the presence of such holiness. So um, I think it's the latter. I think it's uh, that's the reason that there is some simple repetition, but for most of it, it advances the ideas a little bit. But I think surely, uh, as we reflect on it, we ought to take from it that uh, this is very, very much on Jesus' heart and mind to make sure that this gets across to his uh, apostles. And uh, we ought to be willing to submit to Jesus' wisdom in the question. So let me read our text as we typically do. John 16, 1 to 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. Well, there's our text. <clears throat> uh, Dr. Ferguson um, brings us back in general to the context of the upper room in the opening part of this chapter, uh, reflecting a little bit on the wonder of Jesus's ability as a teacher. Um and his strategy um, the, um, the, that he has with trying to bring these uh, men along so that they uh, can grasp and learn to live by what he's taught them. Um, it is remarkable, he reminds us, that uh, in the context of last week, we noticed that um, a very powerful teaching about the Trinity itself um, it is a part of Jesus' discourse. 
And um, Dr. Ferguson says they might have found it uh, ludicrous um, when he went on to say that I have many things to teach you, but you can't bear them now. They might have thought, wait a minute, I'm not sure we can bear what we've had. Um, Now, he mentions um, in this context the ontological and economic trinity. And I I wonder, are you all familiar with those terms? Do you know what the uh, idea is there? Let me comment a little bit on it. Um, uh, The word ontological here uh, refers to being, uh, the thing itself in its essence. And the word economical here refers to working. And the Bible portrays the Trinity both as ontological, that is having to do with the very being of God. Uh, He is one God in three persons, in his being. But the Bible also, and very powerfully, portrays the Trinity from the point of view of the working of God. And in fact, most of what we know about the Trinity is concerning the economic Trinity, because it is so intricately woven into the revelation of God's redemptive purposes. So we typically think of the Father as appointing or electing or decreeing. We think of the Son as working out the Father's plan, bringing it to pass. And we think of the Spirit then as applying the fruits of the Son's work uh, to our lives. And um, that is a rich and wonderful teaching Now, these days, uh, this distinction, however, um, is crucial because there came to be theologians that were wanting to say the only trinity is the economic trinity, that this has nothing to do with the being of God. This is just the way that God appears when he's working. Uh, But the Orthodox have always insisted, no, the Bible's saying much more than that, that this is rooted in, this is an expression of, in an an extraordinarily mysterious way, but nevertheless an expression of the being of the deity uh, himself. But in any case, these are are heavy uh, subjects, and um, um, we we surely feel sympathy with Dr. Ferguson, uh, imagining that the disciples would have said enough, enough. Um, but Jesus wasn't uh, finished teaching. Um, he had more, has more to say yet, even in this setting. But he's also going to be alerting them more fully uh, to the Spirit's um, teaching role. And um, in the course of this, he makes some wonderful observations about the nature of Christian teaching per se. Uh, this is at uh, near the bottom of 143. Um he notes that there are some people who love to teach and there are others who love to study in order to be able to teach. But those two things of themselves don't qualify a person to be a teacher of the Christian religion. What finally qualifies them is that they have a love for God's people and want to serve them by bringing God's word to them, to nourish them, to strengthen them, to build them up in Christ. It's that heart concern that is uh, the final qualification. The other gifts are natural or uh, um, cultivated, 
but this is something that must flow from the heart of the one who would be a teacher on, beca- on behalf of the Lord. Um, and, and otherwise, the point is that, um, especially because uh, Christian teachers are typically uh, loved by the people that they serve, um, uh, it is tempting for a person to do it simply for self-gratification, for the adulation of uh, folk, um, and um, the uh, that that self-gratification is finally fatal, because however they may be effective in communicating information and perhaps even lucidly explaining things in a way that people understand. If it isn't within that framework uh, of um, one who loves the Lord, loves his people, and is longing for the Spirit's blessing to make it effect in in their lives, there's just not going to be spiritual nourishment. Uh, It ends up being uh, something like what Paul said, warn the Corinthians about, that simple knowledge puffs up. Uh, There's a spiritual knowledge that finally uh, engenders a proper humility, and this ought to be seen in the life of the teachers of the church. The Apostle Paul, uh, uh, um, Dr. Ferguson notes, uh, was wonderful in this, especially in my judgment, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, a precious text. He said, we proclaim not ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord with ourselves as your servants uh, with for Jesus' sake. And of course, uh, Paul had learned that well from his master. That is precisely what Jesus did with respect to his apostles and what he expected all of his apostles to do. Jesus was the first model. And you can see his care in our section tonight in verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you, you can't bear them right now. He has a sense of who they are, what is going to be best for them, and he uh, disciplines his own efforts according to the realization he has of uh, their needs. This leads Dr. Ferguson into a very interesting discussion of the nature of discernment. Um, uh, he understands it to have three parts. Um, there is... Uh, a knowledge that you have. Uh, there is a um, uh, an experience of the truth yourself. So a, a, a knowledge, an experience of the truth, and then um, following on that, the uh, ability uh, to communicate empathetically with another person. Um, so Dr. Ferguson calls this, uh, not only understanding the people themselves, but, uh, understanding the questions behind the questions. And he said, Jesus is a good example of that in our text, uh, tonight. He, uh, knows that these three questions are on the hearts and minds of the disciples. Um, why are you telling us this? Why now? And why are you? And why are you telling us that you are leaving us? So it takes up the three questions in turn. But let me stop there and see if anyone has a thought or question or uh, concern about any of the first part of this chapter.
All right, I'll press on. First question. Why tell us this? And the uh, answer is simple. Uh, He says to them, I'm keeping you from falling away. Dr. Ferguson notes that uh, there are always multiple goals that you have in teaching. So it was with Jesus. Uh, And um, it has a variety of effects. So earlier he had said, I'm telling you these things because I, I want you to have joy. I want your joy to be full. Now he's telling them about a a suffering that's coming and yet the Spirit's help that will be provided. And he says to this, the point of this is to keep you from falling away. Uh, For warned is forearmed. And uh, um, so this will fortify them for the enormous task that they have. And he wants them to be able to see... um, Uh, why they're going to suffer and why they're going to need the Spirit's help. Um, And it's not because they're worthy of hatred in and of themselves. On the contrary, people are going to be doing this because um, they've not known the Father and they haven't known me, he argues. Uh, On 146 at the top, Dr. Ferguson puts it this way, persecution will be directed against you but it is not ultimately about you. And this is a great point because Dr. Ferguson thinks that this helps to remit, uh, withdraw the worst of what the pain of persecution is. He calls it drawing the poison out of the sting. Um, because I can say to myself, uh, Lord, this is about you, not about me. And I'm your committed servant, and I know that you uh, uh, can carry me through this. And this produces a measure of equilibrium, even for a person in the midst of the most trying circumstances, to realize it's about the Lord, and the Lord will take care uh, to accomplish his business and will take care of his people. Um, So um, he wants them not to be overwhelmed, not to be taken by surprise, but rather prepared um, and uh, to be able to uh, profit from the things he had said earlier. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. Uh, And I'm going to give you a helper, a helper who is going to uh, make it possible for you not to fall away. On the contrary, And you really could call this chapter a chapter about victory because uh, Jesus, on the face of it, is saying you're going to have before you enormous opposition. But the undercurrent of the whole story is, but that opposition is not going to prevail. But rather, you are going to prevail. You are going to become the people who turn the world upside down. And, um, um, And even... Uh, if you face death, you won't fail, but will prevail, just in the same way that Jesus prevailed through death. Um, and that would be the hope of every one of his disciples in such circumstances. That's the first question. Uh, the second, um, why tell us this now? And I thought this was especially um, insightful and especially moving to think of Jesus loving 
his apostles. So um, this is um, about the middle of 147. The response of Jesus is the second uh, paragraph. I have said these things to you that when the hour, their hour comes, that is the persecutors, you may remember what I told them, uh, that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So uh, his point here is that Jesus has known all along that these men are going to face these enormous challenges. He didn't tell them from the beginning because he was with them. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that I'm here to absorb, to be the brunt of, to be the uh, uh, receptor of all of the opposition right now. You are simply bystanders in a way and so on, and I'm here to protect you. But now that I'm getting ready to leave, I won't be the immediate focal point any longer. You will be. And so I need to tell you about it now and help to prepare you to take over this new role. Now you will be, uh, um, well, uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Saul was persecuting the believing community, he was persecuting Christ. He wants them to understand that, but in the meantime, they themselves are going to be the ones who suffer. And Paul will later talk about that as a participation in the suffering of Christ. That's the high privilege that belongs to his people. So that's the burden uh, of uh, why tell us this now. Um, the, uh, he was leaving and they needed to be prepared for what they would um, uh, face um, upon his departure. Um, so we could sum this point up in saying that a full revelation of the persecution to come had not been granted to them before because Jesus was there to protect them and while there he absorbed all the opposition himself. And in fact, we'll see that he's going to fulfill this role right up until the time of his arrest. It's beautiful section, you remember, in John 18, 8. They come to take Jesus, and he answered, and he said, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. And this was in order to fulfill the word that, uh, fill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. It's a beautiful uh, picture of Jesus' care for his disciples. Um, that he, as foreseen by Isaiah, tended them like a flock, gathered them like lambs in his arms, uh, and carried them uh, in his bosom. Um, the general aphorism that seems to be in force here is a beautiful one, that uh, today's troubles are enough for today, there'll be enough grace for today, and that'll be true then in the things that come. Uh, so this section concludes, why did you not tell us all this before? Because sufficient for each day is its own evil. 
and sufficient for the day is the grace provided on that day. This is the life of faith. And I I think that is a a precious point. So let me stop here and uh, again and see if there's anything that you'd like to contribute or uh, to reflect on or to ask a question about. Dave, um, this is Paul. Throughout this book, um, Dr. Ferguson has made points that have made me realize I wasn't appreciating the humanity of Jesus. Mm. And the point at the bottom of, of 147 struck me. He says Jesus had carried his heavy burden for years. And somehow I just you know, hadn't um, thought as thoroughly as I should about what Christ as a human considering and planning throughout the days and weeks and months leading up to the the cross, that it was a burden to him. Yes. um, I just love that he's done it a host of places throughout the book, but um, really made you realize that Jesus is fully human and, and was experiencing things the way anyone would in some ways. Yes. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's been, a, I think, a real blessing in Dr. Ferguson's exposition. Any other thoughts? All right, well, let's um, press on to this Next question, why leave now? The third question. Um, and uh, this is the one that perhaps is most shocking. Um, the, um, he had uh, said that he was leaving, and there had been various discussions about it. Uh, but now he comes out, um, as Dr. Ferguson puts it bluntly, top of 149, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Um, um, And Dr. Ferguson wonderfully and succinctly helps us to grasp how these words must have been shocking to the apostles. Here they're being told they're entering into a period of crisis, a period of crisis that is going to require extraordinary things from them because Jesus is leaving. Uh, How could this be a moment of advantage for us? Uh, And um, but the point is they haven't grasped the paraclete um, promises and instructions uh, yet. They haven't fully come to grips with what that all amounts to. And so we uh, come back to the question of um, Jesus leaving so that um, the Holy Spirit could be poured out upon the apostles. Um, That uh, So when we think about this, that... um, Unless I go away, the helper will not come to you. We need to get clear on what the um, necessity here is. Uh, Why can't the Spirit be sent unless 
Jesus leaves? Well, it's not for any metaphysical reason. It's not for anything that, that has to do with the very nature of things itself. Rather, the cannot is because of God's purpose in redemptive history. The reason it cannot be is eschatological. That is to say, it it has to do with God's unfolding plan of redemption. And that being his plan, this part of the plan can't come to pass until an antecedent part of the plan comes to pass. That's the sense of cannot here. Uh, God obviously could do anything he wanted. So the, the necessity here is rooted in what, in fact, God wants, what he has planned, and how he's bringing it to pass. And I think it's worth remembering that the Old Testament looked forward to the age of the kingdom as being the age of the spirit preeminently. You remember all the promises throughout the prophets, uh, for example, Ezekiel in 37, um, the prophet says, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your land and you shall know that I am the Lord. So to an Isaiah, uh, and throughout Isaiah, but a passage that's particularly apt, um, Isaiah 32, 14. Uh, for this place is forsaken until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Uh, this is preeminently the age of the Spirit. But the point is, That age of the kingdom, the age of the spirit, is all tied to the coming of the Messiah. And the Messiah's work to be accomplished. The saving reign of God can't come to pass until Jesus has died, risen from the dead, is exalted at the Father's right hand, returning to the glory that he had enjoyed with the Father before the world began. That's the inauguration of the Age of the Spirit, where Jesus, in the largesse of his extraordinary achievement, pours out his Spirit upon his people and transforms the world in that. Um, So that, uh, I I think, fills the picture in just a tad about that cannot, because that can seem so perplexing. but the, uh, Jesus is going to go on and unfold how this advantage will come to the disciples, especially in this, that he's going to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then he goes on to explain uh, each part of those. Tersely, they still need some elaboration, and Dr. Ferguson's going to elaborate beautifully on it. But concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, and uh, that is going to be um, the uh, nature of what follows under this heading, the spirit of conviction, uh, of a discussion of these uh, different convictions and how it functions uh, to the advantage of the apostles. Um, And... uh, 
it's worth um, noticing here that um, uh, the word conviction can have a, a, an objective sense um, that evidence is pre presented and it is convicting. It also has a subjective sense, that is, a person is subjectively persuaded, brought to conviction themselves. And I think <clears throat> that's worth noticing because I think the use of the word conviction here intends to have both senses, that the spirit is going to be objectively bringing home the evidence that ought to convict and at the same time working within Christ's people to have them receive that and undergo the conviction. Um, does that make sense uh, to distinguish between the two, but then to um, see that they're both part of the Spirit's work? Kate, uh, Kate or Will? Dave, I just didn't want you to go too far ahead because I had a question on the other page. Oh, yeah, sure. So... That's really helpful about how the, the spirit, why the spirit has to come. But the spirit was in the Old Testament too, right? When David is saved and when Moses and... This has um, nothing to do with um, God's uh, way of saving a particular person in every age of redemptive history. Um, the way, the way, the, there's a very simple message. God saves sinners. And uh, a person receives that message. Um, the Spirit brings them to life to embrace it. And then the Spirit works to transform them. That is what happens in every age of redemptive history. But redempt the knowledge of what's happening in redemptive history is unfolding more and more and more as the ages pass. So that God's people understand what and how and so on. So uh, people knew very little with respect to, for example, the inward work of God, uh, bringing the soul that was dead in trespasses and sin to life. The work was going on. But it wasn't understood, and it certainly wasn't understood in relationship to the achievement of Jesus. The benefits of Christ's achievement were uh, present throughout all of redemptive history because of the extraordinary character of his achievement. It, it wasn't as if you had to wait and see whether Jesus was going to do what he would do. Because Jesus was who he was, it was certain that that redemption was going to be accomplished in time and space. And so properly, the benefits of that redemption could be applied to everyone called by God. But for most of redemptive history, hardly anybody knew much at all about what was going on and why. Uh, but each one of those three terms as redemptive history moves forward, becomes more fully and more fully elaborated on who God is, not only creator, not only the providential ruler, but that's seen more and more. 
not only the last judge, but the Savior who will come and finally take judgment upon himself. We knew there had to be the shedding of blood through the whole Old Testament um, sacrificial system. But it was perplexity as much as anything helpful. It didn't seem to be permanent. It had to be done again and again and again. There there was as many questions as there were answers supplied throughout redemptive history until we come to this pinnacle where now all that the Father intended was Christ and all that was Christ he was going to deliver to his people through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do, Do you see that? Yes, that's very helpful. Great. Thank you. Great. Wonderful. Any other thoughts? Um, let's see here. Oh, so I, I, I had made um, some comments about conviction in general. Um, so... Um, Dr. Ferguson takes us back to an earlier theme that he had brought up, but one that's so very important, it's certainly worth hearing again. Uh, he, He says at the bottom of page 149, we usually think of these words, that is about the spirit of conviction coming and so on, as a general promise, sort of considering them abstractly and apply them immediately to our present day. He wants to warn us off this. Um, And especially here, because uh, Dr. Ferguson's going to try and show us that these words constitute a specific prophecy from Jesus. Um, And that, in fact, the words were fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Um, The... uh, So he takes us through the various points. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit convicted the world. Uh, this is important to see, and and there are other instances like this that we, we could bring up, but where there's a prophecy that um, is fulfilled because the circumstances, as it were, paradigmatically fit the prophecy. So we, we hear the Spirit's going to convict the world, Does that mean every human being who ever lived or every human being that's alive at a particular time or, and here the world is found in the known world being gathered on the day of Pentecost. All of these people representing the world and hearing the gospel preached in their own language, as the Spirit was poured out upon uh, the entire crowd. Do you get that point? The um, and and so when um, uh, the uh, oh the text now has gone out of my head uh, that the, when the gospel is preached to the whole world, then the end will come. Similar kind of thing. Um, the if if it means each and every person who would ever be, it can't be a sign 
uh, uh, work accomplished. Because as long as people keep people keep having babies, there's going to be more people in the world who haven't heard the gospel. Um, so it, it can't mean that, uh, and, and it certainly doesn't suggest in any way that somehow babies won't be produced and we'll be able to finally have gotten to everybody. And uh, so that's not the idea at all. Uh, but the, the universally uh, pervasive power of the gospel so in the world so far as God intends it to be so. It's not a quantitative judgment. It's a qualitative judgment concerning the person of God, the purpose of God. So secondly, then, on the day of Pentecost, uh, the world was convicted concerning sin. And uh, he points out Peter's preaching again, boldly. Here, the, Peter, that couldn't even identify himself as a follower of Christ to a slave girl, now is standing before this group and saying, this Jesus you crucified. Uh, they had refused to believe him, had condemned him, uh, and crucified him. But God has the final verdict as he's preached now as risen for the resurrection of Christ um, uh, was the vindication of Jesus as the Messiah. And those who are hearing this come to be convicted of their sin and unbelief. Uh, As uh, the text says, they were cut to the heart and cried out, what must we do? So there's the conviction of sin. Thirdly, on the day of Pentecost, the spirit convicted concerning righteousness. Uh, This is a little harder to get at, but I think um, the heart of it is uh, in the latter part of what Dr. Ferguson is saying, that uh, it's a conviction of something that is true of Jesus. That is to say, his righteousness is vindicated at the resurrection. In fact, uh, on page 152, uh, next to the last paragraph, or page 151, next to the last paragraph, Dr. Ferguson nicely contrasts John's gospel under two rubrics, witnesses in favor of the defense, Jesus, and witnesses in favor of the, the accusers. Um, and uh, that, that's really a powerful dynamic, I think, and gives you insight into John's gospel. It looks like the accusers are getting the last word as Pontius Pilate uh, allows him to be put to death. Um, But now the spirit is going to give his testimony by raising Jesus up. His resurrection and ascension constitute his vindication by the spirit of God. Uh, It demonstrates Christ's righteousness He has declared the righteous one and those who are crucified also come under conviction of righteousness that they're not righteous. Uh, But that's a corollary. That's not at the heart of it. Top of 152, I think Dr. Ferguson really nails it. And now in this demonstration of Christ's righteousness, the spirit convicts them of their unrighteousness. 
then fourthly, uh, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit convicted concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Um, the point is, the one who engineered Christ's condemnation, uh, Satan is now himself judged and condemned, and the same fate must therefore await those who sided with him against the Savior. But convicting them concerning judgment was not the end, but it was rather to move them to flee from the wrath to come, to cry out unto God for mercy. In other words, the Spirit's conviction here is in order that they uh, would repent and believe in judgment, be baptized, and received forgiveness and a place in the family of God. So here is the advantage that the disciples enjoyed at the departure of Jesus, this amazing outpouring of the Spirit's work and conviction. And the disciples' number goes from about 120 to over 3,000 in one day's uh, sermon and preaching. Absolutely remarkable. Um, But there are greater advantages yet. But let me stop there and um, see if you want to comment or uh, question. All right, let's press on then to these greater advantages. And this um, is a tremendously important portion of this chapter uh, that we get clear on the apostolic role. We've uh, touched on it in places, but this is um, the fullest elaboration that we'll have from our Lord and from Dr. Ferguson's uh, studies of his word. Um, The apostles had much to learn, and Jesus still had much to teach. Uh, The um, And the Spirit was going to be crucial to this, He says it couldn't have been just the post-resurrection. I I love it. He calls them post-resurrection seminars that Jesus put on during the 40 days between Easter and Pentecost. That that wouldn't be enough uh, because Jesus had said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now, remember, uh, Jesus does not want us to understand this as being spoken to us. It isn't a promise to me that he's going to guide me into all truth or to you that he's going to guide you into all truth in any one-to-one way. He's speaking directly to the apostles. And his promise is fulfilled in them. We need to get that point before we try to look at what implications this might have for our lives. Um, That's in the middle of 153. Uh, we must first ask how this promise was fulfilled for them. Only then should we ask what the implications might be for us. The apostles gathered in that room that night are a unique and unrepeatable role in the church. And you see that in uh, that footnotes fairly important. I hope you took some time to think about it. As we've said a number of times, there are Greek words in the New Testament that have a broad variety of usages. Uh, Some 
common everyday word may also be adopted um, to a technical sense in the New Testament. That's true, for example, with respect to servant. Uh, the word diakonos, it can refer just to a, a commonplace servant, but it comes to have a technical sense with respect to the office of service in the New Testament. Uh, that's true for the word minister as well. Uh, a minister uh, can simply uh, be a, a, a kind of administrator in some way or another, but it comes to have a technical sense with respect to the ministry of the word. And here, it's true with respect to apostle. It can just mean messengers in general. Uh, it can refer to Jesus as the apostle of the Father, a sent one. It can refer to uh, people sent by their churches on a particular mission. Uh, that especially gets a little dicey for some people who aren't attentive to reading the text. Uh, but it refers particularly and preeminently to the 12 plus, plus Paul. Um, and they're being spoken to in that capacity. Uh, Dr. Uh, Ferguson puts it succinctly, there was no succession plan for them. And that's powerfully demonstrated in the pastoral epistles, especially where Paul is making provision for the ongoing government and ministry of the church. And you see he has nothing whatsoever to say about any kind of continued uh, apostolic role. I will say that uh, Protestants do believe in apostolic succession, but not in a succession of apostles. Rather, Protestant apostolic succession is the succession of the apostles' teaching in every age of the church, passed on from one community of believers to another. That's the apostolic succession that we grant. And what... Um, I think the Bible is talking about when it speaks in those terms. So, um, how do we um, um, keep out of trouble here? Um, we don't make the mistake of thinking you here belongs to uh, we. <laughs> um, the... Um, we want to see how this promise is fulfilled in the apostles. Uh, the Spirit, Dr. Ferguson says, comes to glorify Christ. How does he do it? First, by taking what is Christ and declaring it to the apostles. Christ is glorified by the apostles becoming the perfect receptacle of all that Jesus wanted his church to know about himself and about the uh, salvation that had been accomplished. Um, the um, only way we have access to Jesus' teaching is through the apostles. And uh, they remembered what he had said and they preserved it in the four uh, Gospels. He also promised to guide them into all truth. Again, that truth. Well, uh, it's virtually a prophecy of uh, the events of Acts and the contents of the New Testament letters. Uh, thirdly, uh, he's going to show the apostles the things that are to come. And we have access to that, too, through their writings. The prophecies recorded in the various books in the New Testament, preeminently in the book of Revelation. 
So, all these points combined then, where do we find the fulfillment of this? In the Gospels, the Acts, the letters, and Revelation. That is to say, in the New Testament. All that Jesus has for his people, he has provided by this blessed promise to the apostles through the power of the Spirit. Um, And so, uh, when they bear witness to him, the Spirit also bears witness. The application of this then, and why it's so crucial that we understand that Jesus is not speaking to us but to the apostles, is that if we want to see Christ glorified by the Spirit, we need to devote ourselves to the apostolic testimony. Uh, We need to be built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Jesus as the chief cornerstone and to look for Jesus in no other place than in the place that he is appointed uh, in the ministry of those who were sent in the world to proclaim the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let me stop on that point and see if you have questions, comments, Yes, Steve. Yeah, maybe a little bit of an aside. But, you know, he had those four definitions in his footnote of the, uh, or four uses of, of the term apostle. And sometimes it's used, churches use the term apostle today. Like I've heard some charismatic churches use that, maybe even some other, other churches. In what sense are they using it? Are they, are they actually trying to say there's, there's a succession in that fourth sense, or are they using one of the other? Uh, it, so, it, it, it'll, I think it'll be pretty widely disparate, um, Steve. Uh, they're, they're not, I don't think they're saying there's an apostolic succession the way uh, Rome does or some forms of uh, Episcopalian thought. Um, I do think they're saying they're apostles, many of them, I should put it that way, many of them are saying that they're apostles like the first apostles, but they wouldn't see any succession. Uh, that is the laying on of hands from one to another throughout all of history to bring... But the, but the gifts and abilities yes. that the apostles have... Right, have right, okay. right. And that that is... Uh, uh, an entirely unwholesome thing for a person today uh, to claim the kind of authority that apostles had is profoundly destructive. Um, And uh, happily, I think in some cases, they're just wanting to have a fancy Bible word to talk about the leader of the church. And it's, it's benign but dangerous. Um, well, and <laughs> the, uh, you know, then in some churches now you, you have, uh, the, uh, how, how do they put it? The, um, that, well, they have a female version of the word so that they can have the minister's wife be an apostle as well. And some churches now are 
uh, calling the minister's wife the first lady. <laughs> it's just bizarre. Uh, but, uh, you know, people have just become untethered from the scripture. Uh, they're not willing to have all of the substantial parts of the church ruled only by God's word. But they want to introduce imaginations and theories and things for, that seem right at the beginning, but because they're not authorized by God's word, end up corrupting the life of the church. Well, we better pu push on to the last bit. Um, this uh, question on 156 that Dr. Ferguson raises is, um, this was to be for the apostles' advantage. Um, they had been those who struggled, but now by the power of the Spirit, Revealing to them the truth, they're no longer foolish, slow of heart to believe. But now they are those who speak with power, according to the authority of Christ himself. Uh, their, the Spirit's work from the inside uh, enriched and enabled them for the great work that they would undergo, undertake. And they undertook it successfully. That foundation, the apostolic foundation, has stood now for centuries and nourished the life of the church and glorified Christ. Um, and, in fact, Peter understood this point. That, that's what Dr. Ferguson brings forward here, uh, that he is writing to encourage all future disciples, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And that believing, how shall they believe if there's no preaching? That comes through the preached word of God. Uh, and so, clearly, it is an advantage that Jesus left them. B.B. Um, Warfield had a wonderful sermon on this subject, and uh, he concluded concerning the application of this to our own time. The spirit is in the world and wherever the gospel of God's grace is faithfully preached, he attends it with his own demonstration and power. That we are sinners, that we need a God-provided righteousness, that otherwise we must all partake in the judgment of the prince of this world. This is God's way, and it is the only way. Uh, a very powerful sermon, and I think a fine conclusion. Well, let me stop there and uh, see if anyone wants to comment, uh, reflect on this section, question it. Any? Oh. Um, did you, yeah. Do you see somebody else? No. Oh. I don't, I don't know if this is far-fetched, but um, on the first part of, in this chapter, hey, 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 um, uh, Jesus talking about he had taken the brunt of the world's hatred, and now that he's leaving, he's warning them that they are going to take the brunt. 
right? Um, so when um, David says in the psalm, against you and you only have I sinned, um, I have, I, for a long time I found that sort of shocking because we feel sinned upon and to say it's only God that against him that we have sinned. Um, so, let's see if I can weave this together. Um, actually, when we sin, even if, I mean, we always are, we're, when we have actually sinned against somebody else, we are really sinning against God in some way, right? I, w- I wouldn't use the word really. Um, remember what David is doing. We could put it this way. If God isn't God, there's no sin. Yeah. So, there's a proper way in which you should think that it's against you and you only. Um, when we're coming to grips with the reality of sin. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't exclude that I've sinned against Tom, Dick, and Harry and right. uh, my family or whatever. That, that, is perfectly compa- that statement is perfectly compatible w- with the statement against you and you only because mm-hmm. they are different categories of understanding. Mm-hmm. The, okay. the one is properly focusing on the fact that I have obligations to other persons Mm-hmm. And that when I fail those obligations, I've done harm to them, and I need to be forgiven by them. Mm-hmm. All of that's entirely right. But the point is, if I don't understand that that's all in the context of the more profound point, that right. by sinning against John, I sinned against God, and that that's where the resolution to the whole matter has to go finally. Right, and that's what I think I was trying to get at because the world is so present with us. You are face-to-face with me. And so what happens between us seems like it's just between us. But So Christ in this, that's that's what it's... I just wondered if this connects with what Christ was doing is pointing out to them that he was present and so he was taking the brunt of it as not the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that um, now they, as his representatives, are taking it. Yes, right, right. And again, and that, that's that lovely phrase of Paul, uh, the fellowship of his sufferings, right. where they say it counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ when they were freed from right. prison. Because I, I, I think the thing with, I mean, in in the Psalms, David has um, done a lot of bad things, and you feel for the people that he sinned against, and that's it seems like that's where it ought to go. But he gets the bigger point, right? That his okay, yeah, great, okay. great point. Right. Anyone else? Um, well, again, thank you all for coming. Um, and uh, 
Let me pray for us. Our Father, we uh, are so grateful to understand um, these warnings and encouragements to the apostles from our Lord to observe more carefully his own tender and faithful ministry with respect to them, the way you blessed that ministry so that these men were so um, amazingly transformed and then used of you to um, lay the foundation of the church and that the promise that Jesus made um, about all that he has to be revealed to his people is carried on from age to age through that apostolic testimony inscripturated. And we pray that we would count that as a precious gift and devote ourselves to allowing that word to have full course in our lives, uh, that it would dwell richly among us. Um, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.